going through Luke's gospel here. Hope this isn't the first time that you've come to Luke's gospel this week. I hope we're, we're, we're digesting it throughout the week. What we're going to do today is we're going to conclude a pretty important section where Jesus has laid out what his family looks like. What are the characteristics of, of, of those who belong to him? And these characteristics Jesus lays out beginning in verse 20 and really going through the end of the chapter. Because every family has its own family values. These are the values of Jesus' family. Uh, every family has a, a culture or, or things that are important to them, things that define them. Um, that's what Jesus is doing. He, he's laying out this. And so if, if we belong to Jesus' family, this is, these are our values. This, this is what defines us. And, of course, we're talking with Jesus more than just his family because his family is in whom and through the means by which he's unleashing the kingdom of heaven. So just think about this. Look at verses 20 through 22. Blessed are the poor, you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven, who hunger, who weep, who hate you, exclude you, insult you. It's in these things and through these things that Jesus is unleashing his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is unleashed to poverty and through poverty. It's unleashed to need and through need. It's unleashed to people who suffer and it's unleashed through suffering. It's unleashed to the persecuted and it's unleashed through persecution. If we just even think about that a little bit, it should mess with us. And then on the flip side, he lays out the values of the, of the world in verses 23 through 26. Um, Woe to you who are rich, well fed, who are um, mocking. It's kind of the laugh of a victor, who are victors, who are popular right now. Those are the values that define our world, or the anti-kingdom. That's against Christ and his kingdom. Then verses 27 to the end, Jesus just further elaborates on what it looks like to be someone who belongs to his family. In fact, this describes God. This describes what God is like. This describes who he is. Verse 36, it says, Be merciful, as your Father in heaven is merciful. And so really in all of this, we're, we're not just talking about Jesus' family, but we're talking about discipleship. Because that's how this whole section starts in verse 13. Jesus chose 12, and those 12 become his family. And Jesus' family is a family of disciples. And this is how a family of disciples behave. This is how they relate. This is the stuff that they value. This is where we need to be careful. Because we could easily conclude then, by reading all this, that discipleship is, is simply about having right behavior. Behaving rightly. And if that's all we see discipleship as being, I think we're missing um, a lot of, of, of the context in which 
we have to understand just behaving because we could just be really good Pharisees, couldn't we, if it was just about behaving rightly. So I want to look at a real-life example this morning, and the real-life example I want to look at is Levi. And this is found in Luke chapter 5, so turn there. Verses 27 through 31. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. After this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. Does anybody know his other name? Matthew. All three gospel accounts include this story. In the Mark account and in this account, he's called Levi. In the Matthew account, he's called Matthew. Of course, Matthew, it's, it's him, the author of Matthew. That's what we're reading about right now. Sitting at his tax booth, Jesus said to him, follow me. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed Jesus. And then Levi had a great banquet for Jesus, a party at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors, and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the Torah teachers who belonged to their sect complained to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus, hearing this, said, answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. My heart says amen to that. You can be seated. So this is Matthew, Levi here, the guy who writes the first book of our New Testament. When Jesus meets him, what is he? He's a tax collector. This is probably a good time now for me to talk about what a tax collector it, uh, was in that day, just simply because even this term, tax collector, gets so much ink in the Gospels, especially in Luke's Gospel. Let me just start with this. How do you feel about paying taxes? <laughs> How do you feel about the IRS? Hey, hey, hey. Someone could work for the IRS right now in here, you know? Um, we love the IRS. <laughs> we love our enemies. We pray for those who... <laughs> I'm sorry. But anyway, you get the flavor, right, of what this guy does. But, I mean, come on, this, this, this is just small potatoes compared to what it was like to be a tax collector back then. I mean, he's not collecting taxes for the state of Israel. He's collecting taxes for Rome. Rome who rules Israel. Rome who has Israel under its boot. And it's funny with Rome. Rome, Rome could never figure out why, why the Jews didn't like, like them. I mean, the Jews hated them. And they couldn't figure this out because Rome's looking at this like, man, we, we, we give them everything. We give them great roads. We, we give them stadiums and all these different forms of entertainment and baths and spas and theaters. And, and we, we, we protect them. Like, why don't you like us? And they promised the Pax Ramona, this Roman peace, came at such a great cost. I mean, just think about the billboards you might have looked at today 
on your way to church. Rome's, Rome's version of, of a billboard in its day. A couple guys on crosses. Imagine if you came to church this morning and saw a billboard like that. A couple guys hanging on crosses. That's what Rome said. You go against us. This is what we do to you. And so, this is Levi. I mean, he's a guy who's in bed with Rome. Let me just show you, first of all, where, where, where Levi lived. If you have a map in the back of your Bible, you can, you can look at it. Because I'm not going to show you a map. I'm going to show you a real picture. Uh, does anybody know what lake we're looking at? The Bible is called a sea. It's the Sea of Galilee. You know this is the northern part of Israel. Uh, right now we're sitting on a mountain called Mount Arbel. This is the place where I think Jesus went up when it says to a high mountain to pray. And after praying, he called his 12 disciples. Um, but the reason I like this picture is, first of all, can you see that road right there? To the left of the lake. In fact, it's going to curve all the way around the lake and then go north. And that road is exactly where the Roman highway was in its day. I mean, one of the major highways in the ancient world. Millions of people passed along it. Uh, People from all over the world, goods, services, armies, all of it, would, would, would pass on that highway in Jesus' day. And if you take that road and you go just to the right, around that bend, there's a town called Capernaum in Jesus' day. Jesus called it his hometown. Look how close he wants to be to the world. Capernaum's there. The road that brings the world is right next to it. Then if you go kind of where that grass is burnt out a little bit and kind of up that little slope, you'd go up there about three miles, and you have a town called Corazon. Then if you go all the way across six miles, you have a town called Bethsaida. That is called the Triangle. It's in this triangle that these intense passionately devoted Jews live. There are synagogues in every town. Uh, this is the Bible Belt of, of that day. In fact, evangelical scholars like David Biven suggest that there were hundreds of rabbis uh, who had disciples, and there's a high concentration of these guys uh, right in that three-by-six radius, three-by-six-mile radius. Think about this. 90% of Jesus' ministry happens in that six-by-three-mile radius. Almost everything Jesus did, you're looking at it, where he did it. 75% of his teaching in the Gospels is, is, is going to take place in that region. Sermon on the Mount happened right up in that place. The reason, though, I'm showing you this is because there's a border crossing that runs right to the middle between Capernaum and Bethsaida. What does a border crossing mean? Border crossing means there's going to be a toll booth. Where there's a toll booth, there's going to be a toll booth collector. Where there's a toll booth collector, Rome's going to have its military presence. And they're going to protect their, the, the, the money that they're going to tax. This is why in our Gospels, we have stories about tax collectors. This is why we have stories about centurions. Now, tax collector. Tax collectors are the guys who sit in that toll booth. 
they're the ones that are collecting money for Rome. This made them traitors, traitors of the worst kind. Because think about it, even in that day, just to pay the tax to Caesar was, was controversial. Do we pay taxes or do we not pay taxes? These guys aren't just paying taxes, but they're part of the machinery to collect those taxes. On top of this, these guys were notorious for being cheaters. Because what they could do is they could demand a higher tax than even what Rome was asking, and then they would just pocket that difference. This is why these tax collectors who are in bed with Rome are also very rich. And they're getting rich off their own people by being in bed with Rome. I mean, this is why in Jesus' day, these guys were literally viewed not just as foot soldiers in in Rome's army, they were viewed as foot soldiers in Satan's army. I mean, they were ostracized, they were cut off, uh, and they're not just cut off from God's people, the Jews, but literally, they were seen to be cut off completely from God. People saw them as people with absolutely no hope of ever being accepted by God. This is Levi. Now, let me just say something also about his name, because to have the name Levi also tells us that he is a member of God's family. But more than that, it tells us what tribe he's from. What tribe is he from? Tribe of Levi. Tell me, what was that tribe known for? Priests and Levites. I mean, the tribe of Levite had this this elite status because really even to be a priest or a Levite in that day, and priests and Levites were at the, the, the very top of the food chain, you had to prove that you were from the tribe of Levi. And if you were from the tribe of Levi, you were instantly qualified to be a priest or a Levite. So you're just born with this elite status. That's why not anyone can just use this name Levi. Only a priest or a Levite from the tribe of Levi can use such a name. So here's where we have to ask this question. What's a Levite? Someone who's at the very top of the food chain. What's he doing as a tax collector? I mean, tax collectors were even viewed worse than than Gentiles. They were viewed as worse than slaves. They, They were the scum of the earth. Well, Matthew and Mark and Luke, as I mentioned, they all, they all um, tell this story in the gospel. But Mark's gospel also gives us another hint, another detail. In Mark's gospel, he's not just called Levi, but he's also, there, he, Mark also gives us his last name. Levi, son of Alphaeus. That's how you said someone's last name. Jesus, son of Joseph. Does that detail matter? I think all the details in the Bible matter. I mean, why, and, and then I ask, why does God want to give us that little detail? Well, who else in the Gospels has this last name, son of Alphaeus? James. James is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. James, son of Alphaeus. In fact, the very early Christian writings support this idea that James and, and Levi were brothers. 
But this is what I find interesting. Every time the Gospels mention James, this particular James, it's never just James. It's always James, son of Alphaeus. But only one time does the Bible describe Levi or Matthew as son of Alphaeus. In other words, this is what I think. I think that the Bible wants us to know that Levi is son of Alphaeus, but just barely. Here's my take. I have to agree with this, but these are stories where God gives us incredible details so we can piece things together. I think Levi lost his family name. I think his father disowned him. Because this I know, any father devoted to God in that day would, would disown his son if his son became a tax collector. That's not my son. He's no son of Alphaeus. He's not worthy to have my name. Now this is where I don't know what came first. I don't know if the father first disowned him and then Levi um, left his family to become a tax collector or did Levi, kind of like the prodigal, just decide, Dad, you know what? All, all your religion, that's for you, man. I, I don't want that stuff. I want to be a man of the world. But any way you cut this, here you have a Jew living in the triangle where people are intensely devoted to God. By blood, he is a member of God's family, but he's cut off in every way. And yes, he has the world's riches, but he is the Bible's definition of poor, because poor isn't just that I don't have money. The Bible's definition of poor also includes being hated and excluded and ostracized and being cut off, especially cut off from God. And here this guy is one day, and Jesus comes along and says to him, Hey, Levi, come follow me. And if you know anything about discipleship and how they did discipleship in that context, I mean, that statement would just blow you away. I mean, what did, what, what, what did Levi just hear Jesus say when Jesus said, Levi, come follow me? He heard maybe the most stunning thing he's ever heard. He heard Jesus say to him, Levi, would you be willing to belong to me? Would you be willing to belong to my movement? Would you be willing to be part of my family? See, discipleship back then isn't what discipleship is today. This isn't Jesus just asking this guy, hey, do you want to hang out with me once a week at Starbucks? <laughs> this is the call to this man from Jesus, Levi, be a part of my family. And I'm telling you, even the word family doesn't get at the, at the true depth of relationship that occurred between a rabbi and his disciples. And then I look at the word, how the word rabbi and disciple are translated in our Bibles. And I love our Bibles. And I want you to have full confidence in our English Bible. Please do. But I'm sorry. The word teacher is a, 
is it just doesn't get to it, and student just doesn't get to it. But that's, those are the words that we apply to this word rabbi and, and disciple. But the teacher-student relationship, and some of us have had amazing relationships there, it doesn't even begin to scratch the, the surface of what kind of relationship a rabbi had with his disciples. The only relationship in our world that gets close to this relationship is if you thought right now in your mind about a father who has this incredible relationship with with his son. Now we're at least in the same ballpark. Because in that context, that's what a rabbi meant to a disciple. That man right there is my father. And a rabbi looked at his disciples and said, these are my sons. I mean, I have, a, I, I have a quote that comes out of the sayings of the fathers. Um, even that, sayings of the fathers. It's the sayings of the rabbis. The rabbis were called father. Um, and these, a lot of these sayings predate Jesus, some of them by 100 to 200 years. This is one of many examples out of these sayings. This is what it says. Your rabbi is accorded higher honor than your own birth father. Because your birth father brought you into this world. But your rabbi brings you into the next world. That's why even Paul, writing to Timothy, his disciple, he addresses Timothy, not just my son. He says, Timothy, my true son. And then when you think about what this is going to look like for the next three and a half years for for, uh, Levi as he is part of Jesus group of disciples. I mean, in Mark, you have this simple little quote. It says, and Jesus appointed 12 of them, and listen to this next clause, to be with him. He appointed them, called them to be with him. 24-7, 365, all day, every day, with Jesus. In fact, these groups, and there were many of them already at the time of Jesus, rabbi and disciples, uh, they, they have a technical term, what they're called. In Hebrew, it's called a havarah. And a havarah is a group of havarim. The best translation of havarim is best friend. And probably the, 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 the best way for me to describe a havarah today uh, if anyone has seen uh, the movie Band of Brothers, uh, it's Easy Company. That's a havara. It's what my um, it's what my uncle Dyke had in World War II with his company of men who went from Normandy all the way to Berlin. Those guys became a, a havara. They were a band of brothers who did life at the deepest level, where words can't even describe the kind of relationship we're having. That's what Jesus and his 12 disciples are. They're a havara. They're, they're brothers. They're family doing life together at the deepest level. And, and they're learning from their rabbi. They're learning from their rabbi how to find God's path and how to walk it out the way God wants us to walk it out. This is what Levi is inviting, invited into. This outcast gets the invitation to come into Jesus. And I will say all of this when I think about it, and I apply this to my own life, 
at least when I'm thinking about making disciples, to make disciples biblically means that there are only three groups of people in my life that even have the possibility of being disciples. My kids, because I'm with them every day. Parents, our job is to disciple our kids. The people I work with, because I'm with them almost every day. And during football season, it's the kids I coach. Those are my disciple-making relationships. Now, we like to make this, this, this call to discipleship all about us. We, we, we like to make it about what we do, and, and, and we make it about our seeking and our performance and all these things. But I want us to know this. This is huge. The call to being a disciple begins with God. His call. I mean, look at Matthew. Matthew isn't seeking God. Matthew isn't seeking out Jesus. Jesus is seeking him out. The Bible says no one is righteous. No one. No one seeks God. God is the one who seeks us. If you read your Bible, you're going to know that, that with everyone, God is the one who, who, who first seeks with Abraham, Abraham isn't seeking God. God comes to Abraham and says, Lech lecha, drop everything, leave everything, and come follow me. God's people in Egypt, yeah, it says they were crying out, but they weren't crying out to the Lord or talking or praising the Lord until chapter 15. At first, they're just crying. God heard their cry. God sought them out. God rescued them. God brought them to himself. It's God. It's the same with these disciples, Peter, Andrew, and John. They're not, they're not seeking Jesus. Jesus came and sought them. Jesus chose them. Same with Paul. Think about Paul. Paul's literally persecuting and killing Christians. I love how Jesus comes to him. He says, Paul, you're killing me. Because that's what, for his body. You're hurting my body. Paul, come follow me. And see, we seek him today because he first sought us. We love him today because he first loved us. We accept him today because he first accepted us. We choose him today because he first chose us. Levi, come follow me. I accept you. I love you. I choose you. I pick you. Come be a part of my family. Can I ask you a personal question? Have you heard this call in your life? Oh, man. It's wondering what that happened there. When did that happen? Man, when did that happen? It just started getting all crazy, didn't it? Sometimes I think I'm having an out-of-a-body experience up here. This morning, honestly, I was like, so, and then I started losing my balance. <laughs> Have you heard his call? I'm not talking about an audible voice, even though I'm not going to say God can't speak with an audible voice. I'm 
See, and I think this is why some of you are wrestling today. I mean, Jacob wrestled with God. Jacob's wrestling with the call. It's like, do I really trust you, God? Do I really want to go your way or do I want to go my way? That's what that wrestling match is about. That's why some of you right now are, 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 are prodigals. Listen, to, to, to be a prodigal, you have to first have a call in your life that you're rejecting and you're leaving. And here's the deal. The, the, the call of Jesus to come follow him, it demands a response. And the only response that's wor- worthy of the call is belief. And this is very important that we understand this. We don't be- believe so we can belong We believe because we belong. Belonging always precedes believing. And if you want to know what belief is, look at Levi. Look at verse 28. I want your eyes to just settle in on that. I want you to digest it. Jesus says, come follow me. And Levi got up and left everything and followed Jesus. That's belief. Because belief in the Bible is not about just being theologically right or being the Bible answer man. Belief in the Bible, it's trust. It's it's literally where we leave our old life and we trust Jesus to give us a new one. Do you know who this invitation is good news to? It's not good news to the people who have God all figured out, who have, who, who have their life all figured out, who are at the top of things, who enjoys ease, comfort, and prosperity. That's not who this is good news to. This is good news to people like Levi. See, it's people that are just kind of got it all figured out and life's good and, and they're at the top and all this. They read this verse and they think, man, poor Levi. He has to leave everything to follow Jesus. Or we read about Peter, James, and John and how these guys drop their nets. They're literally dropping everything. It's a picture of them dropping everything to follow follow Jesus. And some of us read this and we're like, oh, these poor guys. They had to leave everything to follow him. Are you kidding? This was the most exciting thing they've ever heard. This was the most exciting day in their life. And I think there's a reason why Jesus says to people who have everything figured out, who have God all figured out, he says the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you guys. And there's a reason why, 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 why rich lawyers um, hear the call and they go away sad. Have you heard the call? And do you believe him? Do you trust him? Because this is something I think we, we, we fail to make mention of when it comes to Jesus. We talk about Jesus as our Savior. We talk about Jesus as our Lord. And he is both those things. I, I'm, I'm not saying he's not those things. Are you kidding? Those realities mean everything to me. But the thing that we forget is Jesus is also our rabbi. Is he your rabbi? Because to be a disciple means Jesus must be my rabbi. 
In fact, these words that he said to uh, Matthew, I, I, I'm almost positive they were said in Hebrew uh, because Hebrew was uh, more prominent than, than the Greek, especially Jew talking to Jew in that day. And in Hebrew, it's lechacharai, which literally means, Levi, walk after me. Because see, this is the essence of discipleship. It's this walking after. It's walking behind someone who actually knows how to walk, who knows God's word, and who has found God's path, and knows how to walk all of that out. This whole thing's a walk. Maybe the picture from, from that part of the world that defines what I'm talking about is the one I love to show you guys every week. Every week I try to get a different one. This one's actually from our world. That's, that's from England. Same thing, though. Shepherd. Sheep. Who are you in this picture? I know what I am. I'm a sheep. And I know this about sheep. Sheep are the meekest animals in the world. They're they're utterly dependent on their shepherd for everything. They couldn't even exist a day without their shepherding, feeding them, caring for them, protecting for them, showing them where to go, leading them to water. And that's why in that day, they couldn't conceive of discipleship without a rabbi. It would be like a sheep without a shepherd. And the rabbi is the one who loves the text. He loves it, and he learns it, and he knows it. Oftentimes they committed much of this to memory so that they could explain it and walk it out and teach other people how to walk it out. In fact, we have a technical word. There's a technical word for a rabbi's interpretation and and application of God's word. It's the Hebrew word halakha, and halakha literally um, means, it's, it's their form of commentary. When we do commentaries on, on the Bible, it's simply, this is what you need to know about this text, and we leave it at that. And then we preach sermons, and this is what you need to know about the text. Their commentary is the word halakha. It means, it, the root of that is to walk. They don't want to just know this. It's got to get walked out. Remember, to a Jew, faith is not a noun. It's, it, it, it's not a doctrine or, or, or simply an ideology. Faith is a verb. Faith is how I live. That's why if you ask a Jew, um, what is it that you believe about God? Their answer will be something like, just look at my life. Because by looking at my life, you will know exactly what I believe about God. And so when we say Jesus is a rabbi, we're not saying he's a Greek philosopher trying to explain the meaning of life. He's not even a professor of theology instructing us on right doctrine. He is a rabbi. He's teaching people how to walk. That's why one of his disciples, John, says if anyone belongs to Christ, he's going to walk as Jesus walked. So how did he walk? What's his halakha? Every red letter in your New Testament. <laughs> Read it. Now, if you want a nice summary of it, you got it in Luke chapter 6, 20 through 42. 
That's a summary of the path that he lays out. That's a summary of how he's calling people to walk. He's showing us that when we walk in this world and we walk out the book and we walk like God, it's going to mean we love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. We forgive those who have hurt us. We don't value the stuff of the world. We prize the things of God. In fact, there's a verse that we just kind of missed. Look at verse 40 of chapter 6. Kind of just tucked away in here. Oh yeah, I'm in chapter 5. I'm like, where is that? That gives you longer time to just meditate on it. A student is not above the teacher. Again. The real word is a disciple is not above his rabbi. But look at this next clause. But every disciple who is fully trained will be like their rabbi. Think about this. This is the call to be like Jesus. To become like him. Peter picks up on this. I mean, they all pick up on this. Um, But I'll just show you um, Peter in 2 Peter 1. He says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us for his own glory and goodness. Peter in that verse says, guess what? You've been called to live a godly life. And look what else this calling entails. Look at the next verse. Through um, these very precious promises, so that through them you may participate in his divine nature. That's what we're called to do. We're called to participate in his divine nature. C.S. Lewis had a little term for this, and I love it. He says, his call is nothing other than to make us little Christs. Little Christs. See, and this is why the call is so awesome. Think about what Levi heard when Jesus said, come follow me. Even in light of what we just heard. I mean, put yourself in this guy's shoes. And for some of you, maybe it's not that hard today. This guy has lived a complete failure kind of life. He's called a failure. He's considered a failure. He's essentially thrown his whole life down the drain. And now the one to whom the crowds as far as Tyre and Sidon are gathering around comes right up to him and says, Levi, follow me. He just heard the most amazing rabbi say to him, Levi, I don't care how far you have fallen, I don't care how bad you've become. I don't care how much of a mess you've made of your life. I believe, Levi, you can become like me. Do you know the power of someone believing in you? I've had a lot of doubters in my life. I've had haters. I still do. I've had parents that believe in me. 
I don't get choked up when I preach. I got my brother right over there. He believed in me. I have siblings who believed in me. I have friends who believed in me. I have coaches and teachers who believed in me. But even as powerful as that is, when this first hit me, what come follow me literally means that the God of the universe who knows me all the way to the bottom of my being, everything about me. And he says, Rod, I believe in you. In spite of all that you've done, all that you are, I believe you can become just like me. I think one of the great disservices we do to people, I think parents do this to children, I think pastors do it to their congregation, I think teachers do it to their students, is we, we, we tell people, we call people to believe in God without telling them how much God believes in them. Because this call to follow Christ is the God of the universe saying, he's saying to us, I believe in you. And it's not because we're so good, but it's because his Christ and what his Christ is going to do in us, he's so good. He's the one who picks us. He's the one who chooses us. He's the one who accepts us. He's the one who invites us in spite of us. In fact, if you want to know the difference really between a Pharisee and a true disciple, this is so important for us to know. Because it's, it's just a little tweak. You need to know. I mean, we just like think Pharisees were the, were, were the worst people on the face of the earth. Are you kidding me? Pharisees were people who were intensely devoted to this book. They were passionate about God. They were passionate about prayer. They were passionate about doing good things on behalf of God, giving. They were passionate about seeking God. But this is where they got it wrong. And it's, it, it's such a little tweak, but it, it, it makes all the difference in the world. A Pharisee thought belonging to God was the result of their believing and behaving. In fact, you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and, they, and Jesus says, says what they're going to say on that day. They're going to say, Lord, Lord, did we do this? Did we do that? Did we do all these things in your name? And see, they're depending on their own merit. They're depending on, on, on their belief. They're depending on... Their good behavior. I'm telling you, this is where we need to be so, so careful because this is how we can move from being a disciple to a Pharisee in an instant. We don't belong to God because we are so good or because we are so good at believing and behaving. We belong to God because God is so good. And he calls sinners. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but I have. His call, his call, it both crushes me and it elevates me at the same time. It crushes me because in the presence of Jesus, I know what I am. I know who I am. I'm a sinner. The worst. You see, this is something the Pharisees didn't understand. They thought they were so good. In fact, I, I love Peter in, in, in chapter 5 because I just so picture this. Jesus is 
uh, teaching one day, and Peter just gets done from, from fishing. He's got probably his nets and the fish on the beach, and now all of a sudden there's this huge crowd that's gathered, so much so that Jesus needs a boat. I see Peter saying, hey, use mine, stand in my boat. The, the, the crowd's gathered around the shore. Jesus gets dialed in. He's teaching. He's preaching. I see Peter at first just kind of mending and fixing the nets, but he listens to this guy, and he hears them. I just see him like this. I see that mouth just, just open a little. He's just dialed in. And I see Jesus as he's teaching. Because trust me, I teach and I know this. As I'm thinking about what to say next, I also see you. And you're picking your nose right now. And you're sleeping. And, and I just see Jesus looking at Peter as he's teaching. I, I love that guy. Well, he's done. Hey, Peter, come follow me. What does Peter do? He says he literally falls at his feet. And he says, I'm not what you think I am, Jesus. Get away from me. I'm a sinful man. Not good enough. I crushed him to the ground. Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners like you, Peter. Come follow me. It wouldn't surprise me if Matthew had the same pro- uh, response. That he just fell to his feet. His call crushes us. At the same time it crushes us, it so elevates us because we have the God of the universe at that time as we're crushed also saying, I believe in you. What's wrong with us today as parents and teachers and coaches and pastors? Why can't we believe in people? We're so critical. God of the universe believes in us. See, a Pharisee doesn't know this, which is why they're never at ease. They're always striving, they're always proving. Their faith is this big, huge burden that they're carrying because it's all about them. A true disciple is restful. A true disciple is at, at ease because they know in their heart that they're a sinner, but that God expects, accepts them and loves them and chooses them and picks them in spite of their sin. And that's why they want to trust him. And they want to be like him. And I'll tell you, we have a rabbi who goes beyond being a rabbi. Our rabbi not only shows us the life we are called to live, a life that you and I could never live, a life that we will never be able to live, which is, the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. It, that crushes us. Which is why our rabbi is so amazing, because our rabbi is also our savior. He not only lived the life we were supposed to live, but he died the death that we deserve to die because we couldn't live that life. And he who knew no sin became sin. He became our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. And that's why he can invite us into his family. You know what I think this banquet in this text signifies for Levi? That Christ Jesus has invited me, a sinner, into his family. And now, Jesus, I'm going to invite you into my home. I'm going to invite you into the center of my existence. I think it's Levi's way of saying to Jesus and saying to the world, Jesus, I come. I follow you.
And we're going to get to the end of Luke's gospel, and we're going to see that Jesus institutes his own banquet, his own family meal, which we're going to celebrate today. It's for his family. It's for his disciples. But not, not only just being the host, Jesus is going to say, I'm not just the host of this banquet, but I'm also the very food you're going to eat. Here's my body, which is broken for you. Take eat. Here's my blood shed for you. Eat it, all of it, in remembrance of me. I don't know where you are today. I don't know if you're a prodigal. I don't know if you maybe have never even heard his call and, and responded. Maybe today is the first day in your life where you've heard the call, like this girl in the first service today, and said, I heard it, and I want to leave my old life and trust Jesus for a new one. Maybe that's you. He's inviting prodigals to come home. He's inviting sinners to come eat. Let's pray. God, just open the eyes of our heart to just see how deep and how wide is your love. And as we right now, God, prepare our hearts to take your meal, may we not do it flippantly, but in silence, God, may we examine our lives, examine our hearts, examine our discipleship, and may your call be heard. And may it be doing its wonderful work on us. Pray that this room would be full of repentance right now, wherever we are. Repentance, that we are leaving, we're coming to you to follow you.